Alright, so we are in Esther chapter 3, and I know you're probably thinking, I thought we were talking about the return of Christ today. What are we doing in the book of Esther? Well, there's a very good reason for us to be in the book of Esther, and you'll figure it out as we go. But we're going to be referencing several comeback stories, as I would like to call them, in the Bible today. But I want to focus on one of my favorites before we get into what I would consider the greatest comeback in the history of all time. And notice what it says in verse 1. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And this is a reminder, too, because in the world we live in, we often see wicked men uh, exalted and succeed and promoted to high honor. And boy, are we ever seeing that in our country, and our state. It seems like the most wicked and the most vile among us are the ones who are constantly promoted. Well, you know what? Even back in that day, you've got this wicked man, Haman, who is getting promoted in the land. And, in, and, uh, and I know we often feel that way. So we often feel like not only are the wicked exalted, but it seems like more and more godly people are becoming the villains. Doesn't it feel that way sometimes? But you know what? That's not new either. In 1 Corinthians 4.13, it says, Being defamed, we entreat and are made as the filth of the world and are the offscoring of all things unto this day. You see what Paul said? He said, we're, we're made as the filth of this world. You know, there are people, they, people have successfully, and it's not hard these days because everybody wants to be a victim and a lot of these uh, different you know, groups of perverts, they want to look like victims and so they need opposition. And we've been put on like these hate lists We've been, you know, on the Southern Poverty Law Center, and they put us with the filth of the world. You know, they people put us with, you know, Nazis and skinheads and KKK and all that kind of stuff. And it's like we are not even related to those people, yet they try to put us with them because we speak the truth on certain things. And it doesn't feel good. Okay, I don't like being on reallifevillains.com. I don't think I deserve. I don't think I deserve that. I, I really don't. I think I should be on real life nice guys and, you know, and realpreachers.com or something like that if that's a thing. But nah, you, you, preaching the truth, it typically gets you put on those bad lists. Nothing's changed. It's always been that way. So, and so in verse 2 it says, And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not nor did him reverence. And you know what? Thank God, throughout history, there's always been men of God who did not play along with the rest of the world and their foolish delusions. Haman was not a godly man. He was not somebody anybody should be reverencing. And Mordecai's like, I'm not playing along with this. This guy's a pile of filth. I'm not going to do that. And thank God for those who came out of it victorious, like Mordecai, we're going to see. But you know what? Thank God for those who died first. Thank God for those who did not get any earthly victory, but they did the right thing and they died doing the right thing. Thank God for those people. And you know what? God's not done with those people yet either, by the way. So verse 3, Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? You know, we're always spoken of as the evildoers. And that hasn't changed either. 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation 
in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And so notice how he said, they speak against you as evildoers. But you know what? By your good conscience. And you know what? While there's a lot of people out there that talk about our church like it's terrible, that talk about me like I'm some kind of villain, you know what? At least I can go to bed at night with a good conscience. You know what? At least I can still sleep good at night knowing that I'm doing the right thing. And even too, sometimes... You know, even when it's religious people, the people who should be on your side, we're going to see some of that later too. But you know what? At the end of the day, we all ought to make sure we have a good conscience to know that we're right with God, even though people are saying otherwise. It says, Now it came to pass, when they spake daily unto him and hearkened not unto them, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath, and he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai, wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. And the, and the one Jew doing right, think about it, the one made Haman hate all the Jews, which, you know what, and the Bible does not tell us this, but I don't think I'm reading into this, and just because, too, this is how it's always been throughout history and in the Bible, but I'll bet it even got some Jews mad at Mordecai. Because he's the only one not bowing. Now, none of the Jews should have been bowing before him. It's like, hey, you're putting a target on all our backs. And I've had people say that, too. You know, you preach, you're a little too mouthy about some of this stuff. You're just making everybody mad at all the Baptists. Well, you know what? It should be all the Baptists preaching the stuff that we're preaching. So, you know what? I'm sorry. You know, some of us have to set an example. And if it gets you some grief, I mean, I know people too that have ministries over into Israel that have apologized profusely for other Baptists who are preaching the truth about Israel because people over there tried associating with them because they were Baptists. And let me tell you, there is no connection. There is no connection, but you know what? There should be. There should be a connection, but sadly, not everybody's preaching the truth. But this one guy doing right, it did. It, it got everybody in trouble. But should Mordecai have been like, well, ah, you know what? I don't want to get everybody else in trouble, so I'm going to just, I'm going to bow the knee. No, I'm glad he did, he did the right thing. And verse 7 says, And in the first month, that is the month Nisan, the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast per, that is the lot before Haman from day to day, and from month to month to the twelfth month, <clears throat> that is the month Adar. And Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in the province, all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's law, therefore it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it unto the king's treasuries. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it unto Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Jew's enemy. And the king said unto Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also to do with them, as it seemeth good to thee. And so notice this plot to go after God's people. And let me tell you, we always have a target on our back by the devil's crowd. That's how it's always been. And notice Mordecai's reaction, okay? Because... If you've ever felt this way, I don't think you're wrong for feeling this way. Hey, when you find out everybody hates you and wants to kill you, I don't think that's necessarily going to make you want to go turn cartwheels or anything like that. But it says, 
And when Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. It, folks, this did not make Haman happy. Now, let me ask you, did Haman, or not Haman, did Mordecai do the right thing? Absolutely, Mordecai did the right thing. Mordecai was in the right. He was doing the will of God. This was right in what he was doing. But at this point, when he's finding out what Haman's wanting to do, he is very concerned. Now, thankfully, this does not stop him from doing the right thing. But this is not a good time to be Mordecai. This is not a good time to be a Jew while these wicked people are being advanced. This is a, this is, the story has turned bad. But and let's jump to chapter 5. Because Naaman, he's going to continue his plan to try to kill the Jews. It says, Then went Haman forth in that day, joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up, nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. I can't believe he's not going along with my threats. I thought for sure these threats would get him in line. I thought for sure if we got this preacher put on some of these lists, it would shut him up a little bit. I thought if we got him banned from some platforms, we give him some strikes and stuff, it would shut him up a little bit. What's this guy doing ignoring us? It's kind of like what I talked about in Sunday school. When you have these authoritarian wannabes, when you don't go along with them, when you don't recognize their authority, they spaz out every time. They spaz out. And so it says, Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself. And when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh, his wife. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things uh, wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the kings. And Haman said, Moreover, Yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself. And tomorrow am I invited unto her also with the king. Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then said Zeresh his wife and all his friends unto him, Let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high, and tomorrow speak thou unto the king, that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou in merrily unto the king unto the banquet, and the thing pleased Haman, and he caused that gallows to be made. He just he couldn't handle one guy. Let me tell you, that's how it is in our world today. They don't want any of us around preaching the truth. They don't want us on any platform. They don't want us doing anything public. And you know what? Eventually, too, if they can get us banned from social media and all that stuff, they will get us banned from just publicly assembling in a place like this. That's just how they are. These people cannot be satisfied. They can't handle anyone out there preaching the truth. And so Haman's like, all right, I I can't enjoy myself with this guy out there. I'm going to kill him. So they make a gallows for him. But let's jump to chapter 6 and verse 6. We don't have time to read everything in this story. It says, So Haman came in, and the king said unto him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? See, God's doing a work while everything's going on. While Mordecai is doing the right thing, God is doing a work. The king can't sleep one night. He has somebody read the book of records to him, which sounds really boring. Thinking, and you know, thinking maybe this will help me sleep. But then he finds out about Mordecai who had uncovered a plot to kill the king. And he's like, we've never done anything to honor this guy. Sure enough, Haman happens to be outside. I'm going to ask him what we should do to honor this man. And so it says, now Haman thought in his heart, because he was such an arrogant, you know, conceited jerk. He thought, to whom would the king delight to honor more than to myself? And Haman answered the king, for the man to whom the king delighted to honor, he's about to tell him everything he would love to happen to him and that he thinks deserves to happen to him. 
He said, Let the royal apparel be brought which the king useth to wear, and the horse which, that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head, and let this apparel and horse be delivered into the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man with all whom the king delighteth to honor, and bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Make haste! And take the apparel and the horse as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. I just, I love, I wish we could see Haman's face right there. What a, what a moment. Then took Haman the apparel and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and brought him on horseback through the street of the city and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate, but Haman hasted to his house, mourning and having his head covered. And Haman told Zeresh his wife and all his friends everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise men and Zeresh his wife unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews before whom thou hast begun to fall, Thou shalt not prevail against him, but shalt surely fall before him. They know after the king did this great honor for him that he's not going to get away with hanging him. And all and his wife and friends are like, you know what? You're going to fall before this guy. This is not what Haman wanted. Jump to chapter 7 and verse 5. It says, And the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he that doth presume in his heart to do so? And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was, was afraid before the king and queen. Esther ends up outing Haman right in front of the king. And he's scared. Verse 9, And Harbona and one of the chamberlains said before the king, Behold also the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. I love it. The gallows that Haman made for Mordecai, he got hung on it. So you shouldn't rejoice that that guy got killed. I'm rejoicing that guy got killed. He had it coming. He deserved it. What a great story this is. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And when the king, and then was the king's wrath pacified. Chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, the king of Hazarus give the honor, or give the house of Haman the, the Jew's enemy unto Esther the queen who was a Jew, by the way. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him what he was unto her. And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And folks, I I read all this to you just because this is one of the greatest feel-good stories in all the Bible. And we have many stories like this. You have a man who... Against all odds, he does the right thing. As a result of him doing the right thing, he finds himself very alone. We see his life is being threatened, but he continues doing the right thing. Also in this story, we see God end up coming through for this man and not only protecting him and delivering him, but taking care of his enemy. And then not only that, but promoting him. Everything that was Haman's ended up becoming Mordecai's. The only thing that could have made this story better is right before they hung Haman, if they could have like just waited a little bit so he could watch Mordecai moving all his stuff into his house. That was the only thing to make it better. And then, all right, you see that? He's got all your stuff. All right, now that we've stabbed that dagger in you, now let's pull the lever. And then, that, that, that's the last thing you see. That's the only thing that could have made it better. 
But either way, what a fantastic story this was. And there are, what is it about these stories that make them great? You have the good guy in an impossible situation. You have them completely hopeless. They are clinging to their faith with all they have. Often what makes these stories good too is they're alone. They have people who should be on their side often standing against them as well. And in the end of the story, the good guy wins. And what makes these stories even greater, the more impossible the situation, the more hopeless the situation, you know, the more faith that we see, the more lonely they are, you know, the more opposition there is, the greater the stories. Do we not like these stories? Do we not claim, I'd like to have been there, I'd like to have done that? Do we not like to think, I would do that? Isn't that why we like stories like David and Goliath? Because it was a young man and not another young man. It was a giant. That's why the story is great. You have a shepherd and you have versus a man of war who is a giant. That's what makes the story great. It's not two shepherds going after each other. Nobody cares about that story. No, this is an impossible situation where we see him coming out victorious. We see his own brethren standing against him. We see his own brethren questioning his motives and accusing him of things that he's not, he's not thinking, he's not believing. We see a king who doesn't even really believe in him. We see a man who's out going out there being mocked by his opponent. But then what do we see? We see him victorious. We see him defeat that giant. We see him chop off his head. We see David then promoted to great honor. We see David eventually becoming the next king of Israel. You know, that's why we like stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That story is great because it was only three, not 3,000. There was a lot more Jews that were in that area than just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the story's great because these three guys stood all by themselves and they did the right thing. And you know what? They got thrown in the fiery furnace. But they also survived the fiery furnace too. You know, most Christians today are doing everything they can to make sure they never have to go through a furnace. But that's where Jesus was. That's where the Son of God was. And it was, it was an impossible situation. Daniel and the lion's den. Why do we like that story? You got Daniel in captivity in a foreign land all by himself doing the right thing, making laws targeting Daniel, specifically wanting to go after him. But what does he do? He, does, he keeps on doing what he always did. He stands up, he does the right thing, and he gets thrown into the lion's den, but it, he survives. We have Noah in the ark. Everybody loves the story of Noah in the ark. You know, think about it. Almost every nursery in Baptist churches in America have Noah's Ark stuff in there. And what is that about? The massacre of millions of people. But you know what? It's a great story. (laughs) It's a great, it's a wonderful story. We're all for it because God also spared one man who is righteous in his generations. One family got spared during that time. One man, one family, they did the right thing. They built the ark. Like God said, they were obedient to him. Without a doubt, they were, they, they were mocked. Without a doubt, they were shamed for what they did. But they did the right thing. And at the end of the day, Noah and his family survived while the rest of the world died. How about the children of Israel at the Red Sea? Why is that such an awesome story? Again, another hopeless situation. You have a people who don't have weapons backed up against the sea, against Pharaoh and his chariots and his armies. That is a hopeless situation but we love that story we absolutely love that story because we see god part the red sea i made the mistake of watching the entire christian bale version of moses 
that as I was watching, I was like, this is stupid. I mean, this movie is so unbiblical and I was getting so angry, but I held on to the whole thing because I was like, I want to see the Red Sea part. I mean, with Hollywood and their special effects, this is going to look really good. And that's just, I've always thought I would love to go back and see that event. And that scene stunk as well. What a what an awful movie that was. What a fantastic story, and what a terrible job Hollywood did with that story. What it just what, what, how horrible was that? But yet, when we look in the Bible, and those of us who know the Bible, we read this story in the scriptures, and then we look at what Hollywood did with that story, and we're horrified by it because that is such a great story, and they literally just went and they ruined it. But you know. How about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? You know, think about it. While Jesus is dying on the cross, you literally have the Messiah and his followers who don't understand everything that's going on. They are watching their Lord. They see him nailed to a cross after being brutally beaten. They see him dying one of the, the most cruel death that anyone can imagine. And not only that, they watched him die. They saw his body put into a tomb. And his body was in that tomb for three days. But that story is great because it didn't stay in a tomb. It came out three days later. We know the end of that story. And therefore, it's literally the greatest story. It's when we go and we tell every week when we go out sowing, we tell the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The greatest story. Without a doubt of all time. But understand that story of the death, burial, and resurrection too. That is part of our story as well. That is part of our story. That is our story. That is our, that is our story. That is our testimony. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we do. We love these stories. We say we believe these stories. But think about this. And not here. But in most Baptist churches today, when we talk about the likelihood that we may very well, if we live long enough, may literally live one of these stories, the biggest of the stories, all of a sudden they act like we're teaching we're under the wrath of God. Let me ask you, were any of these, was, was Mordecai under the wrath of God when, when Haman's trying to kill him and kill all the Jews? Were they under God's wrath during that time? Was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego under God's wrath, God's wrath when they got thrown in the fiery furnace? Was Daniel under God's wrath when he got thrown into the lion's den? Were, they, were these guys under the wrath of God and all these things took place? No, these are the stories that we grow up listening to in Sunday school. These are the stories that we constantly hear preached about. We hear preaching at the youth conference, be a David, be a Shadrach, be a Shadrach and Abednego, be a Daniel, be like these people. But then whenever we start talking about, hey, we might actually get a chance to be one of these guys, we might actually get a chance to face something like this. Oh, no, no, you never have to do that. God will put the Jews through that, but God will never put Christians through anything like that except for Paul, except for all the other apostles, except for all the first century Christians, except for Christians in other parts of the world today, except for Christians throughout history. You know, but us, no, there's no, there's no chance that we're going to get put through anything like that. What a, what a ridiculous teaching that is. To, to just, and, and what an opportunity people are, like they're trying to miss out of. And if all of us in the futurist camp are right about the coming tribulation, if we all believe the Bible like we say we do, why on earth would we hope to miss out on the greatest comeback story 
since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And think about it. I, I know time travel is not real, but we've all thought about it. And we've all watched movies about it and thought, I'd like, you know, how many has ever thought if I had a time machine, I would go back to certain things, okay? Now, I'm, I'm just going to prove to you that a lot of people, if they had a time machine, I really believe that many Christians today, if they had a time machine and they could go back to the Red Sea, that I believe that when Pharaoh's armies came, they would start waving a white flag and run to Pharaoh apologizing. I really believe that they would. You say, why is that? Well, wait a minute. Think about it. Our, our, it's very clear. Well, look, look what it says in uh, Isaiah chapter 46. I'm going to get a little ahead of myself here. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. Remember the former things of old. Remember those things. There's, I, and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. In Revelation 22:13, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So again, we all would agree that because we know the end of the story, I don't think I would be scared if I went back and I was at the Red Sea with Moses. I'd like to think if I could go back in time and I'm standing there at the Red Sea. And I, you know, I can just picture, you know, I like to picture myself standing there just kind of bored. It's like, you know, all right, when's Pharaoh going to get here? That's when it gets good. When's Pharaoh going to get here? I can see all the people standing around murmuring, what are we even doing here? You know, what, what's going on? Where, where, are we supposed to, where are we supposed to go from here, Moses? Are, are we kind of in a bad position? I'd be like, yeah, you better believe we're in a bad position, but this is about to get good. I mean, this is what I would do if I went back in time. As soon as all of a sudden Pharaoh's chariots started coming, I'd be like, watch this, folks. Guess what's going to happen next? There's going to be a pillar of fire that's going to block them and stop them from coming at us. And then, sure enough, all of a sudden the pillar, I I believe, that pillar would come, it would block them, and they're like, well, what are we supposed to do now? Oh, folks, this is really going to be good. Wait, wait do you see this? And I could, I could just see, you know, if I'm around a lot of people, I'm looking for Moses. I'm watching. When's Moses going to get up and go full Charlton Heston and, you know, hold out that staff? And I'm like, oh, here it goes. Here it goes. He's holding up the staff. He's saying, see, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He's saying in Hebrew, I can't understand it, but I know what he's saying in English. This is going to be good. And then that water parts. I'm running out there. Nobody's got to, nobody's got to talk me into it. I know how this works. I'm not going to hang back. Wait, you know, because I know what happens when Pharaoh and his army start going through that. That water's coming down. I mean, I'd like to think that's what I would do. I'd like to think if I could go back in time, if I found myself back in time, and I'm at, and it's at the death of Jesus Christ while he's on the cross. I'd like to think that I would be standing there the whole time telling everybody, "Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world." This is what John the Baptist was talking about. This is what he came for. This is the sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God. That temple that is behind us. That temple, we don't need that anymore. Those sacrifices couldn't take away sin. This is the second Adam. This is the last Adam. This is the Son of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. You know, and I'd have a revival meeting outside the tomb. Outside the tomb, we're having round-the-clock preaching going on. Anybody I can get to come with me. And we are having preaching going on. And for those three days... And here's the thing, too. While pe- I would love the people who want to come along and make fun. Oh, really? You're going you're to come and make fun? We just got a few more... You, you come back early Sunday morning. You just wait. It's going to be good. 
I'd be trying to get the biggest crowd I could there early Sunday morning because we know what's going to happen. I'd like to think that if I went back in time with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that I'd be like, I'm standing with those guys. And you know what? I don't think I would be afraid when they would start to throw me into the fiery furnace. You know why? Because, and, and I imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they might have been a little afraid thinking this is going to hurt. But if I could go back in time, I don't think I would be afraid. I'd be like, this is about to get really good, boys. We're going to see, we're, we're about to see, we're about to meet the Son of God. And we're going to live to tell about it. That, I, I don't think I'd be scared. I don't think I'd be scared getting thrown into the lion's den with Daniel. You know why? Because I have read these stories and I have seen how they turn out. But ladies and gentlemen, do you not realize we have read the final story? We have read the story of the tribulation. We have read how that story ends. Why would we not want to be a part of that? Why would we not be excited about being a part of that? Why would we fear those things? Why, why would those things bother us at all? If we believe what God says about the past, shouldn't we believe just as much in what God said about the future? I mean, it just makes sense. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. We all, we all understand Jesus is going to win in the end. It says in Jude 1.14, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and what of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. You want to know what our world has in common with the false prophets? Ungodliness. You know what? You know what's keeping people away from the things of Jesus Christ? Ungodliness. Sin. But you know what? One of these days Jesus is going to come back with ten thousands of his saints and he's going to execute judgment. And you know what? All of those who weren't participating in that ungodliness, we're going to be glad on that day. Do we believe the story or do we not believe the story? In Revelation nineteen eleven it says, And I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness. He doth judge and make war. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed in a vesture, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, folks, that is how this is thing, things are going to end on this earth. Jesus Christ, 100% victorious. And you know what? We believe David and Goliath. Do we not believe that? We believe David and Goliath. Do we not believe Revelation 19? We should. You should believe it. it I, we should be just as confident in Revelation 19 as we are in the story of Daniel. As in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the parting of the Red Sea. You say, yeah, but what if we suffer? Again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't get hurt. That's great. But that's not the case for everybody. We see that in Hebrews 11. There were others who they, they suffered. They died. They were in prison. They were destitute, poor. They went through all these things. What if we suffer? What if we are alone? What if we die? But here's the thing. If we suffer, if we're alone, if we die, that makes the comeback that much better. That's what makes the comeback that much better. Coming back from the dead is huge. You want to know why the story of the death, burial, and resurrection is such a great story? Because Jesus was dead 
for three days. Jesus was dead. His soul is in hell. And yet, it couldn't hold Him. That's why it's a great story. It couldn't hold Him. He arose from that. That's why it's a great story. That's why it's good news. And so, it says in Revelation 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. Folks, this is to come. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. Folks, if you get beheaded, your story is not done. That's just where it gets good. That's, that's where you are in the hopeless situation. That's where, I mean, it, it's, it's that much better of a story if, if you die. That's a bigger comeback. That's a bigger comeback than coming back from getting beat up. That's much bigger. You know, Rocky Balboa, his stories are great because he's always getting the snot beat out of him, but he always ends up winning. The Apollo Creed story stinks though because he died. And he didn't ever beat that guy up after that. But in our story, we die. And yet we can still come back victorious. That's even better. That's better. I hate to use carnal references like that, but sometimes, you know, to reach carnal people, you got, you got to use some, you got to use some carnal illustrations. But it says, uh, for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God, which had not worshiped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Those who refused to take the mark and were beheaded, they participate in the first resurrection. So do you all realize it's possible while that we could, you know, that's our Daniel in the lion's den moment. That's our opportunity to not bow the knee. That's our opportunity to keep praying like Daniel did and to, and to go against the government and to go and face whatever it is they bring. And even if they succeed in chopping off our heads, we're not done because it says here, they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Are you really going to throw away these things? Are you going to throw away the rewards that you can enjoy for a thousand years on earth for eternity so you can get a few more years on this planet? It's not, folks, it's not worth it. Absolutely not worth it. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But I would not have to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others, which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose, from, uh, rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with them. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall you ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Listen, I hope I live till that time. But you know what, folks? I'm very thankful that if I die before that time, I'll at least be around for the good part. Because I'm coming back. I'm, I'm coming back to life. 2 Timothy 2.11, it is a faithful saying, For if we be dead with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will deny us. If we believe not, yet He abideth faithful, He cannot deny Himself. If we suffer, we shall reign. You know what? The greater the suffering, the greater the reign. So you know what? Our attitude should be, bring it. 
You know what? You can have this theology, this escapist theology that says Christians aren't going to be here for the greatest time of opportunity in history. But I believe the Bible teaches something different. And you know what? I'm not scared of it. And I'm tired of listening to Baptists say, well, you know, that Bible says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. That's not going to be very comforting. We have to go through tribulation. That's not what he was talking about. He was just comforting that, hey, that your brothers who died in tribulation, you're going to see him again. And so, you know what? Again, if I get taken out before every, you know, before... Uh, Jesus comes back, I'll be back. I'll be alive for the good part. I'd like to be able to stand with everyone through the whole thing. But, you know, either way, we'll be coming back. And you say, well, and and this is how we think, all right? Maybe, Maybe I'm just talking about myself. But have you ever thought about this before? Because again, I know, we've got, I've got enemies out there. I've got, I've got enemies. I've got the scoffers and the atheists and the gatheists and all these people out there that they hate my guts. And, you know, the thing is, I mean, it's possible we all might be dead before the Lord returns. And in the meantime, I might have to watch them get promoted to honor while I suffer on this earth. But folks, okay, what about all our enemies who die before all these things happen? I want, I want my enemies there to the end. I like to think when Jesus comes back on the white horse and we're with him, that he might not let us take a swing at a few people when it all goes down. I don't know if he will or not. I hope so. I, I really do. And, and you know, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna give you, if, if I may, my beliefs on how, how things are gonna go down at this next event, the Great White Throne. And I'm probably not 100% accurate, but I will promise you this: I'm gonna tell you what I think. I'm probably not right, but whatever is God has will be better than what I'm thinking. But if I may just give my own thoughts on this. In Revelation 25, it says, but the rest of the dead, these are the atheists and the atheists and all those people out there, the, everyone else, they live not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Jump to verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. This is the dead. This is the unsaved. They are going to be judged according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. So this is the picture I have in my head. Okay? Like, you know, so let's just suppose that my life ends with me getting my head cut off. Because I'm not taking the mark. Okay? And let's just, let's just suppose it ends that way. That executioner, he's going to stand before a great white throne and be judged according to his works. You know what they're going to talk about when they cut my head off? And you know what? It's going to feel real good when he's being judged. I don't know if the Lord's going to let me do this, but I'm going to make sure I step over somewhere he can see me and just be like, I'm I'm still here. And you know what? I've, I've already got it planned out. Before they kill me, my last words... Or you can kill me, but you can't keep me dead. They can't do it. I will come back. You know, what if they die before you come back? 
I'll, then I'll have to rub it in their face, the great white throne of judgment. It's my goal. It's my goal to be the last martyr. I want to be the last martyr right as Jesus Christ is about to return. They just cut my head off. It goes rolling off. And then all of a sudden, Jesus Christ comes back and it gets retached to the head. And then I look at him, told you, boom, gone. That's how I hope it goes. That's why I'm going to hold out to the end just in case. But even if I don't, even if I'm dead for several days and they watch my body rot, it's going to come back. And they're going to stand before it. Remember! Remember what I told you. Hey, I've been, I was, I've been ruling rain for a thousand years. You know what I did? I went and moved into your house just so I could go track it up the house and then I went and tore it down. And you know, I, I don't know that's how it's going to go. It's going to go something like that. Say so you shouldn't do that kind of thing. I probably shouldn't. I'll be glorified at that point and I might not. But let me tell you, if I'm anything like I am now, I'm going to have a few things to say to some of these people. I don't know if God's going to let you say anything. Well, you know what? They are going to have to walk these people to cast them in the lake of fire. And I'm going to make sure I stand in the path somewhere. And at least get a look at them. And I'm going to wave. I'm, I'm doing something. I'm doing something. You know what? Because the story's not over. And let me tell you, the longer I was dead, the better of a comeback it is. The more I suffered, the greater of a comeback it is. The more we suffer, the greater the rewards. Folks, we have the end of the story. Do we not believe the end of the story like we believe the beginning of the story? We rejoice in the cross, and rightfully so, because we understand what Jesus was doing at the cross. We rejoice, we sing about the death of Christ, not because we're glad He suffered and died so much, but because of the fact He was taking away our sins and He rose again. He came back from the dead. We sing about these things, but why can't we get excited about suffering that we might have to endure in the future? Why can't we get excited about tribulation that cometh in the future? Because tribulation worketh patience. I mean, all, we're going to be rewarded for all of these things. Do we not believe that? We understand the good that came from the cross, so we rejoice in it. If we, and if we believe what the Bible says about the good that comes from going through tribulation, should we not rejoice in these things? Should we not get excited about these things? If you could go back to the time of Christ, would you try to talk Jesus into not going to the cross? Would you try to talk Him into descending the legions of angels to destroy Him? No, you wouldn't do that. You would be praising Him and you'd be shouting through the whole thing. But we've got a lot of Christians today who act like they believe the stories of the past, but when it comes to the things of the future or even just suffering we might have to do in our life, we're like, Lord, what are you doing? Lord, what's going on? I don't understand this. I don't understand why I'm going through anything difficult. You all... I, no. He said we were going to have to go through tough times. We said we'd have to face tribulations. We'd have persecutions. We need to endure these things. There are rewards that come. And what, a, what an honor, what a wonderful thought to know that it is very possible, that it is very possible that we could live out the greatest comeback story in history. That's very possible. I'm, I'm glad I'm not a pre-tribber who has a theology that has us missing out on the greatest comeback story in history. I mean, their story stinks. You know what they're hoping for? They're hoping they can just escape all the things that will bring the greatest rewards. They're just hoping one of these days as they are just drudging through life, drudging through their Christianity, just trying to hang on for dear life emotionally, when they've not even resisted the blood, they're just hoping one of these days the Lord's just going to feel sorry for them and just take them out right then when they don't see when they least expect it. That's lame. That is, that is so lame. This is so much better. You know what? We're all going to be wanting to meet Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when, and the kingdom. And you know who we're not going to care about? The other Jews who bowed the knee. 
Nobody cares about them. Nobody knows who they are. Actually, we do know that some of them are named in the genealogies and things. But who cares? When we meet them one of these days, oh, where were you when Daniel was standing up against the king? Where were you when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went and bowed the knee? Why were, who cares about those people? I, I, I thought we wanted to be these people. I thought we wanted to, you know, we were supposed to learn from these things. Do we really think the Bible put all these things in there for us so the Jews can have it in the, in the tribulation? No, it's for us. These things were written for our admonition. That's what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians. These are for, they are for us. We could live that out. And just how on earth could what we teach be considered us teaching that Christians go through God's wrath or that Jesus is a wife beater? Imagine calling what we teach that. That's absolutely ridiculous. The problem with many people today is they just don't really believe the Bible. And if they did, if you took them in a time machine and you took them back to the parting of the Red Sea, they would go running to Pharaoh with a white flag. I didn't know it was going to be like this. I didn't know it was going to feel this way. No, that's how it always is. Revelation 21.5 says, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And this is so good right here. And he said unto me, Write. Write. For these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. We already know how the story ends. That's all there is to it. So are we going to get excited about it or are we going to cry about it? Are we going to get excited about it or are we just going to flat out not believe it? We can't keep saying we believe these things and then as soon as we have to face something, all of a sudden we don't believe those things anymore. All of a sudden we're ready to throw in the towel. Well, but we're alone. All the good stories of people are alone. Yeah, but this is hard. All the good stories are when it's hard. Those are all the good stories. Nobody, nobody cares about King Jotham. Why? Nothing happened during his kingdom. Everything went pretty good because he was a good king. I like him because of that. But yet, I mentioned King Jotham. You're all like, uh, who's, who's that? No, he, he, didn't do, he didn't do any suffering. You know, we, and so we ought to be excited about that. The ending's going to be that much greater. It's going to end with Jesus Christ returning and us seeing him. And when he comes back, I want him to find me faithful. And I want him to find you faithful. And so with that, let's pray to our Lord. We thank you so much. For your word. We thank you, Lord, for giving us the end of the story. We thank you for the countless stories that you've already given that, that prove you always keep your promises. And Lord, we have no reason to doubt, and I pray you'll help us to uh, have a victorious attitude no matter what we go through, no matter how big of defeats we suffer on this earth. Help us to understand it's never over uh, until uh, the trumpet sounds. And so I pray, Lord, you'll help us to just remain faithful and to keep on uh, moving forward for you and help us to do it with joy and excitement. In your name we pray. Amen.